Today is part two of a sermon series called Creation Cares. We will be reading from the very first book of the Bible, the very first chapter. And so far, if you had read the first few verses, you would have heard about how God created the light, the rivers, the animals, and now we hear the rest of what happens on day six. So listen for how you also become part of God's story of creation from Genesis 1, beginning at verse 26. Then God said, Let us make humankind in our image according to our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, and over all the wild animals of the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. So God created humankind in God's image. In the image of God, God created them, male and female, God created them. God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful, and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves upon the earth. God said, See, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is upon the face of the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit, and you shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the air, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw everything that God had made, and indeed it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. May God bless this reading to our understanding. My granny lived her entire life on a farm, first on her father's farm in Arkansas, and then on her own farm, the one in Frost, Texas, where she and my grandfather raised 12 children. Granny planted onions and squash and tomatoes, and she spent the hot summer afternoons canning pickles pear preserves, and okra, enough to fill the tornado shelter and carry the whole family through the winter. She also raised cattle and chickens. And many Sunday afternoons when we visited her, we would find her little house empty, the door unlocked, because Granny was out driving around the rural farm roads in her pickup truck, even though Granny never had a driver's license. When I moved away to Connecticut for grad school, I experienced quite a culture shock. So when I came home that first summer, I sat down with Granny in the little farmhouse, and we had a rather memorable conversation. I tried to explain to Granny that life in New England was very different from life in Texas. She didn't seem to get it, so finally I said to her, Granny, when you're driving around Connecticut, you almost never see anyone in a pickup truck. And she looked at me, she cocked her head, and she said, well, then what do they haul their crops around in? What do you say to that? I didn't know how to answer her. You see, Granny was like most of the people in Bible times, 85% of whom were full-time farmers, immersed in the agrarian way of life, hands in the soil, tilling and keeping their land. But I belong to the modern era, 
where only 1% of the people in the United States are engaged in full-time farming. Do you realize that today we have more prisoners in this country than we do farmers? Millions of us spend our days in windowless offices staring at electronic screens. We don't need pickups to haul our crops around. Well, not long after Granny and I had this conversation, I had another memorable conversation, this one with the TA, the teaching assistant in my Old Testament class. Her name was Ellen Davis, and we were meeting to talk about one of my papers. She noticed that I carried into our meeting a Bible. It was a Bible I had received as a gift from an elder in my church who knew that I was going off to seminary. It was a study Bible, you know, the kind with the footnotes and the chapter introductions. But the TA looked at that Bible and said, that isn't going to work. I was shocked. I mean, it was a brand new Bible. But she said, your Bible, I mean, you can read it for devotion, she said, but it's not the best translation, and you will have a hard time discerning the original meaning in Hebrew with that particular Bible. I mean, what do you say to that when somebody tells you you have the wrong Bible? Mostly, I just felt bruised, injured. But later, this TA, Ellen Davis, became a full professor, first at Yale and then at Duke. And later, much later, I read her brilliant scholarship on the book of Genesis. And I began to see what she was talking about when she said, you have to get the word just right. For example, in today's passage, the first Story in the Bible, Genesis 1, chapter 1, it says that God created humans and gave all of us dominion. But in Hebrew, the word for dominion is not about domination. She says that the best translation for the word that comes across in English as dominion is the Hebrew concept of exercise skilled mastery over. Do you hear the difference? I mean, dominion can be like a king squashing his subjects, but skilled mastery is like a craftsman exercising artful care. Too often, we human beings have excelled at dominating or squashing the beauty of God's creation. In an article dating back to 2007, Professor Ellen Davis reports that a quarter of all the bird species have become extinct and 30% of the fish. And today, the Audubon Society currently estimates that two-thirds of the birds are at risk of extinction. Dr. Hayhoe, Catherine Hayhoe, is a climate scientist who teaches at Texas Tech. She's a a faithful evangelical Christian married to a pastor, and she also serves as the chief scientist for the Nature Conservancy. She points out that in the current climate, even our beer is at risk. She says the warmer temperatures have decreased the yield of hops, and some companies, like the owner of Miller Genuine Draft, are currently experimenting with cassava root to replace barley malt in making beer. She says that the Arctic Sea is declining on average every year, an area the size of Ireland. Now, it's not a big country, but 
that's a lot. But you know, need me to stand up here today and recount to you the science behind creation? You all read about it all the time. But the question is, do you and I think of creation care as a part of our Christian faith, or is that something people just do because they're good citizens? Belden Lane is a professor at St. Louis University and also an avid hiker. He's written several hiking books, Backpacking with the Saints, about hiking in the Ozark Mountains here in Missouri. His latest book is called The Great Conversation, Nature and the Care of the Soul. And his premise is that nature speaks to our very souls. For example, in 1829, the German composer Felix Mendelssohn visited a cave off the coast of Scotland. Mendelssohn was mesmerized by the haunting beauty inside one of the largest sea caves in the world. The oceans were cutting through the black lava pillars, making it into a gorgeous natural cathedral. And while he was inside the cave, Mendelssohn said he heard it singing singing to him. While in Scotland, he sent a postcard back to his sister, scribbling the opening notes of Hebrides' overture. He said it just came into his head while he was there in the beauty of that sea cave. Now, most of us are not any creative genius like Mendelssohn, but all of us have some experience of being overwhelmed by the beauty and the grandeur and the majesty of creation. In fact, when we have an amazing experience, we call it a mountaintop experience, a mountaintop moment. We've all had moments where we're strolling along the beach at sunrise and we have some kind of aha, or we're sitting in the fishing boat in the pond at dusk and something comes to us unbidden. We garden, we landscape, we sink our hands into the dirt, and we love our pets. Raise your hand if you have any kind of pet. Yes, a lot of us have pets. 85 million households in this country have pets, and collectively, we house 90 million dogs and 94 million cats. We know that we are in holy conversation with God's gifts of creation because even if you don't have a pet, when your neighbor or your friend loses a pet, you say, oh, I'm so sorry, and we grieve the loss of our animals. We say, oh, he was part of the family. And when it comes to our pets, we don't try to dominate. We exercise skilled mastery over this creation that we love. For some reason, caring for God's creation has become politicized, like, it, like it's a political topic, like it's left for the environmentalists to discuss. But long before that happened, creation care was part of our spirituality. It was a part of how we expressed our faith in the goodness of God. It was part of how we worshiped God who created everything. We remember this when we read Genesis 1, where God creates the earth, and God creates on day six 
all the animals and the people. We are created on the same day as the cattle. We are blessed. The cattle are blessed. God is the giver in this passage. Everything that is created, a garden of delight given to us, that word repeats throughout, God loves us by giving us all of these gifts. And Belden Lane says, we should ponder where is God in this great conversation? We can respond, says Belden Lane, to the gift of creation in one of four ways. One is we can use the creation, maybe even use it up or exploit it for our own gain. Second is we can explore creation. We can be fascinated by it and take pictures of it. Third is we can celebrate creation. We can express our awe and our praise of it as Tyler did so beautifully in the prayer this morning. Or finally, we can love it. We can love the gift that God has given us and express our desire to be one with all of creation in the holy unity that God created us. But Belden Lane, Catherine Hayhoe, many other Christian scientists say today, all of us are unlikely to save what we do not love. Do you remember a few years back when the moment came that it seemed like everyone was carrying a cell phone everywhere they went, well, the wireless telephone industry started giving out an annual award for someone who would use their cell phone to save a human life. And one year, the award was not given to a person, but to a dog, a 17-pound beagle named Belle. Belle's owner was Kevin, and Kevin had a diabetic seizure disorder. When Kevin would have a seizure, Belle had been trained to hit the buttons on the phone and dial 911, and it saved Kevin's life. But they discovered in giving out this award that Belle had done something that no one trained Belle to do. She just did it all her own. Belle figured out all by herself how to read Kevin's blood sugar by licking Kevin's nose. If Belle sensed that anything was out of whack, she would begin frantically pawing and whining at Kevin until he would do something about it. And Kevin said, every time she paws at me like that, I grab my meter and test myself, and she has never been wrong. What do you say back to that? How do we respond to our interconnectedness to creation, to our pets, to all plants, stars, oceans, rivers? What do you make of a bee that can touch 10,000 flowers in one day? And then the bee can go on to waggle in such a way to communicate to the other bees where the pollen is located. What do you make of the sugar maple tree that can release pheromones to warn other trees of an insect invasion. Creation, you see, creation is in dialogue and we are part of God's holy creation. We are a part of the ongoing conversation. 
This book by Belden Lane caused me to think about this conversation that takes place between nature and the soul, but more than that, it caused me to think about the conversation that is going on all the time between God and human beings. In Genesis 1, on page 1 of the Bible, God initiates a conversation with us, with the human race. God gives all of us this amazing gift of creation. God creates the apple tree, the giraffe, the goldfinch, the 1,000-foot waterfalls, the grapes for wine, the wild plants that will one day be used to make life-saving medicines. God blesses us. God trusts us. God invites us to partner with God in tending to the beautiful creation in the Garden of Eden. And what do we say back? In her recent book, Saving Us, which is a great book, Dr. Hayhoe describes that many human beings on this planet, many governments, many corporations are responding to the gift of creation in amazing, life-saving ways. Now, if you're like me, you keep reading the news that says the sky is falling, everything is terrible. But Dr. Hayhoe says there's actually tons of good news even in my home state of Texas, where she teaches, so much good is happening. For example, Texas has the largest army base by landmass, Fort Hood. And Fort Hood is 43% powered by clean energy, which is not only good for the environment, it saves us as taxpayers so much money. DFW Airport, near the home where I grew up, was the first large carbon neutral airport in North America. And the city of Houston, headquarters to many multinational oil and gas companies, is on target to meet the carbon emission standards set by the Paris Agreement. No more joking about Texas. 90% of the new energy installed in this country in the first year of COVID was clean energy. And right here in Kansas City, homeowners, businesses, not-for-profits are reaching out to solarize Kansas City, a public-private partnership that is helping us to not only reduce costs, but to conserve our precious energy. As Christians, these are not just environmental responses. These are theological responses biblical responses. These are ways that we reply to the conversation that God began when God first created us and loved us and gifted us with all of this splendor. The story of God's steadfast love, the story of God's faithful endurance, it does not begin with the cross. It begins with the story of creation. Our response is finally not rooted in science. It is not rooted in politics. Our response is rooted in love. The question is, will we love God back? And you can read all the facts and the figures, but Dr. Hayhoe says that our choices are the biggest uncertainty of the future. Will we love God back? 
I love this story that comes from the Jewish Hasidic tradition. It's about a rabbi's son who all of a sudden began skipping synagogue during the morning prayers. He would skip synagogue and go off into the forest and wander alone, and the boy's father became concerned that the boy was not only neglecting his prayer life, but he was also fearful of the dangers of the mountain landscape in the forest where the boy was wandering around alone. And so one day, the dad went to the, to the son. Son, why do you go out there alone in the forest? I notice you've been doing it a lot lately. The boy replied, I go into the woods to find God. Ah, that's wonderful, replied the dad. I'm so glad you're searching for God. But you know, son, you don't have to go anywhere special to find the Holy One. Blessed be God. God is the same everywhere. Yes, answered the boy, but I am not. What if God is like my granny, unable to imagine a world without crops and animals and people tending to this stunning garden of delightful creation and nourishment. What will we say to that? 